expressly talks in the scriptures about how we ought to worship, especially in 1 Corinthians 14. He's talking about a corporate worship setting. And so it's in these places that there are principles that the Word of God sets up that we do. And of course, you know, some people might think it's a little traditional. Some people actually might love it because you're old school. You know, I personally love singing the Gloria Patri because when you think about it, you know, you're singing Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. That song is over a thousand years old, and some estimates have had it to a thousand five hundred. So if you think about it, the church has been singing this, this one hymn for over a thousand five hundred years. And to me, that's such a beautiful thing that we can join in that choral praise of our God. There's also other things that we can go through, like, well, how do you know what sin is? You know, what is sin? And then when we learn about the Westminster Larger Catechism, we see that it teaches us it, what the Word says about sin. It's not conforming to or transgressing what's in the Word of God. And you can see that in question number 26, and all these things that we continue to learn and grow. So whether you may realize it right away or not, slowly but surely, you start to learn about the Word of God. You start to be changed. And this is a process that we call sanctification. And it's because God instructs His people how to worship Him, we also become changed and more sanctified. And so I personally love that. Our heart is to conform more to the Word of God, especially when it comes to corporate worship, meaning how we worship Him here. We have been going through the book of Hebrews, and today, this morning, we are on a little longer section of passage so please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 to 29. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 to 29. You can find it on a pew Bible on page 948. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we are at the end of chapter 12. We as a church have been going through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we now have come upon the fourth and final warning given to the Hebrew audience by this author. And I think that this may, this warning may be the strongest of the four that we've gone over so far. This is the strongest warning. And so some may wonder why so many warnings even have to be given, especially after the wonderful exhortation and encouragement we saw last week in the beginning of chapter 12. You may even think about that idiom. Don't you know that you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar? I'm not sure where this idiom originated from, but at least now we know that almost every DIY kit to catch flies has vinegar in it. So you need vinegar to catch lies. The point is that what we see the author, when we see the author use both exhortation and warnings, it is to disciple the Hebrew audience. He's using everything in his capacity to pastor, to teach, and instruct. Yes, honey, but yes, also vinegar. And once again, this is a holy pastoral approach that is taken, and it's it's what any loving parent would do as well. So as we begin this morning's passage, let's start off in verse 14, which is actually an exhortation. Verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is a command for the church to strive or to pursue peace and holiness, just as we are to pursue wisdom we're to pursue happiness, we are being shown that the objective reality of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross leads us then to pursue these two qualities, peace and holiness. But peace here isn't simply to live in harmony with one another or even within the community. When put in this context of chapter 12, we see the eschatological significance of Christ's suffering and the cross, and so the peace talked about here, or mentioned here, is talking about a peace that has already been achieved by Christ. The peace that Christ achieved for us is a holistic, complete peace, a shalom. And then that peace would mean a future perfection achieved, a new age brought forth by Christ's inauguration of the new covenant. Some might ask, but what if 
But if that peace has already been achieved, that means you're telling me that Christ achieved that peace for me, then why should I pursue it? Don't I already have that peace? But since we, we have talked about sports metaphors in the last passage, we could say that it is in a similar manner to receive the gift of athleticism and to working out. Just because you receive the gift of athleticism doesn't mean you don't work out. But I like to go a little deeper than even that metaphor. To strive for something, even when you have it, it should not be a foreign concept to us Christians. To strive for a loving relationship between you and your spouse, even though you love each other, is a normal thing, isn't it? It's precisely because you love each other, you strive or pursue even more to keep that love, to pursue your spouse. And in that same manner, we are to strive or pursue peace. We are to also strive for holiness. When the Christian disciple recognizes the gift of salvation that they have been given, the justification for their soul, it is in response to that very salvation that they now want and yearn and long to live according to the Word of God. The Christian doesn't obey the moral code to be saved. That's one thing that needs to be said and clear. The Christian doesn't obey the moral code of the law to be saved, but in response to the salvation that we've been given, the respo in response to the salvation that this Christian has received, the perfect life imputed to him, he would in turn, with gratitude, live out a new life that God has commanded him to live in the Word. Now, we might expect the retort against this to be something like, well, what's the point of it all? I don't see any difference. I don't see the difference. Well, the difference is at the end of verse 14. Our justification and sanctification is our journey to see God. The Bible says, while all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is why holiness is such an important aspect to the Christian life. It separates us from the world, yes, but it also acts as a marker that we belong to Jesus Christ. Consequently, without these marks then, you will not be able to see the Lord. Therefore, pursue these things. Verse 15 and 16 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. In this section, we are given three no's. No one falls, no bitter root grows, and no one is sexually immoral or unholy. The three no's significance is that these are further characteristics of what we have gone over as the apostate, the one who does not and will not inherit salvation. And so keeping the same spirit and fervor from the word strive or pursue in verse 14, we are to see to it that these no's do not come about in your life. It starts with a short no, the second no is a little bit longer, and it gets progressively longer to the third no in its explanation. 
The first no is about failing to obtain the grace of God. This structure denotes an active or willful disregard of the grace of God. These are people who handle the gospel with unbelief, carelessness, and or an outright rejection. This structure is also similar to Deuteronomy 29, 18-20. And let me read that for you. The structure of the nose, okay? Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of his of this sworn covenant blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. The sequence here that we saw in Deuteronomy is actually the first two no's. Rejecting God's grace is to turn away from God and to serve other gods, to serve other ideologies, to serve yourself, rather than the creator of all things. So in that same vein, the root of bitterness is a stubborn heart that refuses to give thanks and worship the living God. It's a heart that refuses to receive the joy of salvation, and their lives instead are full of anger, bitter jealousy, and they are ultimately hostile not only to the brethren, not only to those that are in the church, but to God. Remember that we are called to strive for peace in everyone in God's house. So why would anyone who calls themselves a Christian not want peace with everyone in the house of God? Well, it's because they have bitterness. They have this root of bitterness, a stubborn disposition of the heart that is preventing them from a heart of thanksgiving. Let let me remind you that thanksgiving is a command. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is not optional. It's not something that we can do when we are ready or when we feel like it. God commands His people everywhere to give thanks, for God is good and His love endures forever. But like I said, it progressively gets longer in its explanation. So the added section to the second no is there. And it's pointing out that when the bitter root grows, the fruit is not only apostasy, as bad as that is, the trouble that it will cause is the defilement of the whole community. Many will become defiled. The fruit of bitterness can potentially corrupt an entire church with apostasy because bitterness is contagious. Now, I suppose that those that are bitter don't really think that they have this rancid contagiousness because they're just really focused on themselves anyway. But the warning is there to shake up and wake us up. Bitterness just doesn't damn you. 
it will lead you to become a defiler of others as well. So we're on just two. Let's go to the third one. The third no is drawn from Genesis 25. The writer assumes that his readers know this story, the story of Esau. In Genesis 25, we're shown that Esau would come back exhausted from a field one day where his younger twin brother Jacob was cooking some red stew. Give me some of that red stew, that's what Esau would say. But Jacob didn't give him the stew right away. Instead, he asks his older twin brother to give him his birthright as the firstborn in exchange for the pot of stew. Now, you might think when you're reading this, that was a very dirty thing for Jacob to do, right? What a guy. His brother's all hungry, and he just, he's asking for his birthright for the stew. But here's what should have stood out to you more. It's the fact that Esau actually does. He gives up his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. And what's significant to note about that is what he said to Jacob when Jacob asked Esau for his birthright. In verse 32 of chapter 25 of Genesis, it says, Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? I want you to remember that. This is what Esau says. I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? So keeping this story in mind, we go to the third no. First, the adjectives used for Esau is sexually immoral and unholy. Sexually immoral is from the Greek word pornos, where we get the word for pornography. And while the connection can be made that Esau was pornos because of his Canaanite wives, and eventually he even take a third wife after Jacob leaves, And that's why he is sexually immoral. But there is this nuance of sexually immoral as being unfaithful to God. So in the following chapter of Genesis, chapter 26, it also talks about Esau's Hittite wives. They would make life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. What Esau did... And everything Esau did, as far as we know, can be summed up in the Genesis verse I read to you. I am about to die. Of what use is the birthright to me? To be sexually immoral and unholy, then, is to turn your back on what is good, true, and beautiful for the immediate present or for the secular Esau was the prototype of the person who would throw away the heavenly for the earthly. And you might have thought of giving up your birthrights as a firstborn son for a meager meal of red stew. That's obnoxiously arrogant, but it was a ubiquitous characteristic for Esau. These are people who, without a second thought, throw away the gift of the sacrifice of Jesus for a momentary pleasure. It is a reckless disregard for the divine promises of God, but for fleeting gain. And there is a further explanation in verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This, is the, this verse is the continuation of the third. <clears throat> no. Of the third no. The story goes on to 
where Isaac bestows his blessing on the firstborn, but Esau was not there to receive it. He desired to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected. And I think this verse gives us a fearsome but deep truth about the reality of our situation, does it not? Salvation is to be worked out with fear and trembling. Not nonchalantly, not dismissively. There are those that think, and I have found that for this example, most of the pe- that people that think like this are people that actually grew up in the church. How unfortunate. They think they know something about the faith, and they think like this. Why would you live your life for Christ now? Just repent before you die. I figured it out. The secret formula. Live life really well, and just right before you die, you go, I'm sorry, Jesus. Why would you do that if Christ would forgive you? Just repent before you die. To think like that would be beyond foolishness. Here the scriptures say that Esau found no chance to repent. What does that mean? Well, number one, it means that repentance is given by God. You cannot manipulate yourself to repent even though You seek it with tears, and that's exactly what Esau did. You cannot manipulate yourself to repent even though you seek it with tears. This should be a sobering thought to those that would believe that repentance is something that they can manipulate. This couldn't be further from the truth. Repentance is a gift from God, which leads us to number two. Repentance is for time. You can repent when you hear the word of God. That's when you can repent, when you hear the word of God. I was thinking about just reading one verse, but I'd just like to read the, just the latter half of Psalm 95 to put it into context. So Psalm 95 from 7 to 11 says this, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's Psalm 95. The rejection of God's gift is truly a reprehensible act. It's something that we see that God loathes. Because what is the ultimate gift of God? The ultimate gift of God to us is Jesus Christ. The time to repent is when you can hear the word of God. And if you can hear the word of God, then the time to repent is today. And in reference to the word today, in Hebrews 3.13, it says, we are to exhort one another every day as, the, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the warning and exalt, exhortation also goes out to the term today. When do you exhort When do you warn? When do you repent? Today, right now. 
That might be heavy for some, but let's continue on. I believe that there will be further extrapolations and exegesis that we see that the writer of Hebrews will do for us. I'm going to take um, 18 to 21 now. For you have not come to what may be touched, the blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The writer moves on to his next argument where he is explaining the experience of the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where Israel received the first covenant or the Mosaic covenant. I say first covenant because that's what the writer of Hebrews also calls it, the first covenant. But the Mosaic covenant is characterized here by seven things. And those seven things are what may be touched. That means it was tangible, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, and a voice. Now, the picture that is drawn by these seven characteristics, the picture that we see in Mount Sinai is that of absolute terror. The people even beg no more words because the external and visual phenomena that they witnessed was so terrifying, but the external and visual phenomena they witnessed was earthly. But even the earthly manifestation, or what we call a theophany, was so devastating that they couldn't bear the command that even if an animal would touch the mountain, it needed to die. And it would go on to say, even Moses said, I tremble with fear. What that means is, in Mount Sinai, in the first covenant, this is not something that they could handle on their own. Whether it was the law of God or God's imminent presence, they could not handle it. Now, we're going to contrast that with the next verses, from verses 22 to 24. But, you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In this section, we see actually seven different characteristics, seven other characteristics. And so it's contrasted. The seven characteristics of Mount Sinai is contrasted with the seven characteristics of Mount Zion. And so if Mount Sinai representing the first covenant, Mount Zion represents the new covenant. I want to make a quick note, and we'll go over this later too, that God in the first covenant and the second covenant is the same God. He is the terrifying and awesome God in the first covenant. Same God, both covenants. That God hasn't changed. But what has changed? The covenant changed. And what is its significance then? The significance is everything. Everything. Let's go to the first characteristic. The first characteristic is given to us in three illustrations for emphasis. It's because they are synonymous. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem. The new covenant is first characterized by what? The presence of God. The presence of God. Secondly, it's where angels gather in festivity. The mood here has changed then. 
What's the mood? No longer about doom and gloom, but there is festal gathering. Thirdly, we see that while the Old Testament always had a separation between humans and angels, especially at Mount Sinai, it couldn't have been more clear, there is no longer that separation. The firstborn, meaning those that are of faith, Christian disciples, those that are currently living, will also be gathered with the angels. That barrier also will be broken. And fourthly, and I believe this order is intentional, we see God who is judge. At the center of the seven characteristics is God who is supreme judge. This ties into what we have read in chapter 10, 30, 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. At the center of all these characteristics, we see this festal kind of crescendo. Why say such a scary thing then? Why not just say, God the loving God, or God the merciful God? A lot of people today would rather us take out these words so that we wouldn't connect God to any judgment now. But by placing it at the center, it is something that we cannot afford to ignore. The God of the new covenant is the same God of the first covenant, and he is judged. More to it later, but we move on to the fifth characteristic. Spirits of the righteous made perfect those that we saw in chapter 11, the exemplars of the faith who did not receive what was promised, they were not yet made perfect, but in the new covenant received perfection because why? They are now in Mount Zion. How? By the sixth characteristic. Through Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. This is the new and final covenant by which all who have faith in Jesus receive the divine promises. Jesus is the mediator and guarantor of this covenant. That means it will never fail. And we are assured eternity in Mount Zion with God through Jesus. The seventh characteristic is how we are made holy so that we can may, we go into or enter into God's presence. It is by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. We've gone over how the blood of Abel still spoke in the previous chapter. And while it spoke throughout the subsequent generations following Abel, Speaking of vengeance and reconciliation, it is Jesus Christ's blood, however, that has the power to save. Christ's blood has accomplished what Abel's blood, or anyone else's for that matter, could not. So now we see this contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, and then he goes back to the exhortation and warning. See, in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if, reject him, if we reject him who warns from heaven. Let's go back to the notion that God is judge. We are to remember who it is that is giving us a chance at repentance. And here the author qualifies it by saying that we are under an even heavier obligation than those of the first covenant. It's Jesus who said in Luke that everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required, and from whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So it should come to us as no surprise that we ought to, when we 
understand the magnitude of the grace that we have received, it should come as no surprise of the responsibility that we have, the weight that we have because we have received the gospel. And then understanding this, how could we fall for the three no's? How could we reject His grace, let bitterness grow, and submit to worldliness instead of the living God? So you see here the, ha- the warning is being hammered over and over again, and I believe it's precisely because he understands the seriousness of the circumstance. You may not raise your voice at your child when he or she is about to do something maybe mildly dangerous. You know, let her fall, that's fine. But if it's potentially life-threatening, how much would a loving parent raise their voice to warn their child? I think it is a pastoral tactic that he's showing, but he's showing us this tactic to show how serious he is. He's showing us his love for the ones he means to instruct, and that's how we ought to take this warning. It's a loving instruction for us to wake up. Let's go to 26 and 27. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is quotes from um, Zechariah, but he exegetes this. These two verses reiterate what has been said before, but also adds another dimension for us to consider in the new covenant. There will come a time where God will remove not just the earth, but the heavens as well. This is what we know as the parousia, the second coming of Jesus Christ. We need to remember to live out our lives with the eschatological truth we have been shown in the word. That means when Jesus comes again, he will bring forth a new heavens and new earth. And this time, it cannot be shaken. That means the new heavens and the new earth will be eternal. Verse 28-29, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us then be thankful. And give to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. This brings me back to the point I made before the sermon about why we worship the way we do. It's because the Word of God commands us to do so. And the warning here is the reminder that God is a consuming fire. He is the judge of all. Apostates will not survive the fire. Those who are too proud to receive the grace of God, but rather reject it and think they can manipulate God. I can just believe God whenever. Let me just live my life. Those people are the people that God is warning now. You will not survive the fire. And so these last two verses provide for us a good summary of what we went over so far. God's holy character remains unaltered, unchanged throughout the generations and the covenants. In our sin, we deserve His holy wrath. But in His mercy, 
He has chosen a path to save us. Those that have faith in Jesus Christ get imputed to them His righteousness. They have Jesus as their mediatorial king and assured a seat with Him in the presence of God. Last members meeting, I gave a video where people really watched. There was a video, a testimony about someone in New York City about his life. And one of the questions that was asked of him, if you remember, was, what are you going to say to God when you go to heaven? What are you going to ask him, if you could ask him something? And he just said, why me, God? Why me? I think that's the feeling that you get and understand when you see the incredible mercy of God that's been shown to us through Jesus Christ and in His Word. Why me? But God has. Don't you see? He has opened your ears. He has given you understanding. And He has given you the season to repent so that you can be brought into His grace. I want to ask, why would you reject that then? Why would you spit in His face then? Shouldn't you then in turn humbly receive it and enjoy, live out the life of salvation that He wants for us. The life of sanctification, a life of holiness, a life that pleases God, a life that promotes peace as well. So let us remember that the warning is given for our benefit, our good, is to stir us up, shake us up. Maybe there are some things in your life right now that are a little crusty, rusty, that need to be shaken off. Because sin is pervasive. Bitterness wants to get roots in you. But remember the warnings to not be apostate, but rather live out your life in faith so that we can give Him acceptable worship, so that our lives may be pleasing to Him and that we can dwell in eternity with Him because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's pray.